Welcome to Season 2 of the Y87 Podcast. I am your host, Tim Harkness. In this podcast, we will be talking to members of the Yale alumni community about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We will be exploring what they've learned, how they see the world, and what they dream of the future. This podcast is devoted to the idea that every life is remarkable, so we will be speaking to a wide spectrum of classmates and friends, exploring as many perspectives as we can. We hope you enjoy the podcast and it gives you something to think about. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. As you listen, please think about acknowledging the generosity of our guests in sharing their lives. Leave a comment, tell a friend, sign up to be a guest yourself. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, sit back and enjoy today's conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me today is Susan Angelo Williams. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Tim. This is a thrill for me. I've been listening to your broadcast podcasts, and I've just been so impressed by this whole thing. So I'm I'm really excited to be here. Well, really excited to have you. So where are you and what are you up to these days? I am now back in my home state of Michigan, and I understand we've got some history uh, from our early days. I never thought I'd be back in M- Michigan, but I am here serving as an Episcopal priest in the lovely town of Milford, Michigan. And our nest is mostly empty, so we've been starting to cross that bridge as well. All right. All right. Yes, I am a, a Michigan native as well. I haven't lived there in a long time, but do go back quite a bit. So uh, good for you. So when you went to college, was it your aim to become an Episcopal priest? Was that the goal? No, it was not. I I felt I would be doing God a, a good turn if I just managed to find a place to go occasionally on Sundays and worship. And that took a little while to find. To my delight, one of my uh, freshman hall uh, mates was also an Episcopalian, which is not something that is the most common thing in the world. So we we went scouting for Episcopal churches early on in my time at Yale. Found variety, but nothing really clicked until they revived the Episcopal chaplaincy. And we had a, a full Episcopal priest chaplain, and he very sensibly held services on Sunday afternoons not on Sunday mornings. And he served pizza afterwards. So this was a huge improvement on any church in New Haven that we visited. And and that really became my congregation when I was a student. But I had no thought of becoming ordained, really. No. And so, <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, my, my mother used to call that sinner's mass, but um, because it was in the afternoon. But it does it's actually understands uh, an understanding of the flock there, I suppose. So, what did you study at Yale? What did I study? I studied economics and polit- political science, the blended major. And that was because I really had no idea what I wanted to focus on. And that combination would let me take a whole lot of different classes without having to pick any one real focus until it got down to how to how to write some kind of a thesis at the end. But it let me take a term abroad. I went to the London School of Economics for my junior spring semester, and that was great. 
and came back and took some more economics and political science. But really, I wanted to take as many different things as I could at Yale. And that was a major that let me do that pretty well. So how did you get from economics and the London School of Economics for your junior year to the priesthood? Like, what was that journey like? That was via a gap year after graduation where I went to volunteer at a mission in West Africa, Liberia, West Africa. Some of my mother's friends mistook that for Libya and panicked, but I had to tell them, no, Liberia. It was the one place that was the closest to the United States. We sent, we sent freed slaves back there and then promptly ignored them and left them to the hostile Africans who lived there and didn't really appreciate their land being taken away. But The Episcopal Church did help to start some churches there, and they used the American liturgy and donated old books, found their way over there. And I was working at a mission station that had been started in the 1920s by an Episcopal monastic order. Yes, there are such things. This was the Order of the Holy Cross, Mm -hmm. and they have a, a house in West Park, New York, where I had gone with our Episcopal chaplaincy group on a retreat. And um, they had started this place in the 1920s. And there were a couple of very old monks resident there and some volunteers and Peace Corps in the area. And that was the bridge between finance and priesthood, because I went over there to be the business manager for a year. Okay. And were you there for a year? I was there for more like 18 months. I ended up extending my time. I had a job offer to come back to if I, they said they would hold a place for me one year out. I thought that was a great insurance policy. And once it was getting time to let them know yes or no, I decided, you know, I I really don't want to be a management consultant anymore. I want to stay a little longer and figure out what I do want to become. Okay. Did you go, after you left Africa, did you go directly to the seminary? I took a little while to get that figured out. And in our tradition, you have to have the backing of a congregation. So, the congregation where I grew up in Michigan supported me do some discernment. Our diocese, which is the next larger group of authority, said, yeah, we we think you'll do all right. Well, we'll give you the thumbs up to go to seminary. And then I found my way eventually to New York City and an Episcopal seminary that's based in Chelsea. And that whole area is much cooler now than it was 30 years ago, but (laughs) it wasn't a bad place to be. So, how would you compare the educational experience of a place like Yale versus a seminary? Oh, I was more than well prepared to be in seminary. We had people from a lot of different walks of life who had come to realize they couldn't put off this this calling, this desire to serve as an ordained person anymore. So, we had people who had spent decades doing something else, whether finance, teaching, you name it. There was, there were just a wide range of people who had already had professions. And so, I was still pretty young, relatively young. I still knew how to take tests and write essays, which many people... It had been a long time since they'd done that. New York City was a great place to just visit churches of all different stripes and 
so many different ways of singing, praying, decorating your space, different kinds of people, different ministries to the neighborhoods. So it was it was just a super place to be formed, but I had no problem with the academics at all and writing and researching and that sort of thing. We still had to do some of that. How much of your seminary experience was the study of scripture versus the learning how to be a minister and tend to a flock? Yeah. Well, we start out, they said that we're going to start out by uh, blowing apart everything you think you know about God and the Bible, and then you'll be putting it back together for the rest of your life. And that was pretty true. Really? How so? We learn, you know, all the things you take for granted when you're a young person about the scriptures. We learned about how, well, probably this didn't actually happen, or how do you balance two different versions of the same story, um, and they're not exactly the same? What does that mean? How do we read history back into what's in Scripture? Those were classes that were fascinating, and I took some kind of Scripture class pretty much every term. You You start out real general, and then you focus in by the end. And then there's church history to look at. There's uh, scripture languages. I took Hebrew, um, which was quite a challenge, but it was actually kind of a lot of fun too. And you also do learn the real nuts and bolts. You know, how do you how do you lead worship? How do you sing this part of the service? How do you try to minister to people in need? How do you make sure you don't cross boundaries? That was becoming an increasingly clear topic for conversation, even back in the late 80s. What kind of boundaries do you worry about in that regard? Mostly relationship boundaries and clergy who would take advantage of someone in need of a friend. And it can be very lonely to be a minister of any kind. Uh, You're always having to make sure you don't put too much of your own needs into the equation when you're trying to minister to somebody else, similar to doctors and other professionals who meet people who are very vulnerable. And so, we were instructed, and not everybody learned the message well enough, but how you don't cross the border of, of becoming a pal with your parishioner. You just, you just can't swap stories. You can't complain about the people in your flock <laughs> to somebody who's in the flock. You can't let all your, your hair down when you're meeting with a parishioner and they're the one in trouble, and you can't make it about yourself. So, we, we learned a lot about that. I'm still learning about that. Sexual boundaries were have always been an issue in the church, and those came up frequently in some denominations. We were trying to learn how to get your personal needs met other ways than with the people you're working with in your parish, how to have healthy relationships, and also how to be extremely ethical in financial dealings. Soon, I think it was right at the end of our seminary time, we learned that the woman who had been one of the treasurers for the worldwide Episcopal Church based in New York City uh, had been quietly stealing from a discretionary fund uh, that she had access to and sending the money to her priest husband's account. So, she was draining the bishop's account and putting it into her husband, the priest's account, and they both got into big trouble. But just thinking that that both of them had to had to cross a, a serious ethical mm. boundary to to decide that that was at all, but that came into our studies and discussions. How did you make it to Michigan? Did you go directly there from the seminary, or is there a winding path? No, no. I um I was sponsored for ordination by Michigan. We have two 
orders. Uh, there's a transitional deacon, we call it, and then a priest in the Episcopal tradition. It's a little bit different from the Roman Catholic tradition, but I was ordained a deacon, which is like a an apprentice in this role, an apprentice priest. But I can't, I can't do the mass. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't marry, do marriages, that blessings, anything like that. While you're a, a deacon, I was ordained a deacon in the cathedral in Detroit, and with several other classmates from other places in the world. And and uh, then I went to Buffalo, and I was at the cathedral in Buffalo for six years. That was my first job. That was because uh, Michigan didn't have enough room for all the clergy coming down the pipeline. So, they said, we like you, but we don't have a job for you, so good luck. And then you're kind of like, oh, crap, what, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I interviewed uh, was interviewed by several larger churches. I wanted to be a, an assisting person. I didn't want to be in charge of a place right out the bat at age 27 and really not a good idea of what I wanted to, what I felt I could tell people and be in charge. So, I, I did, I was blessed to work with more experienced clergy for those first six years of ministry and really learn from them and their congregations. Buffalo was a great place. I still have great fond memories of Buffalo. So, I was there for six years I got married in the cathedral in Buffalo. My husband is also a priest, and I spent 20 years in that area, that region of New York State. Buffalo and further west. You don't really think of New York State going that far west, but it does. It Um, does. It does. Erie, Pennsylvania was our our city that was closest. What kind of church are you in now? How big is your, your flock, and are you the lead person in your parish? I'm the solo ordained person in this church. I have gone into a specialty um, the last few years of being a transitional uh, interim, and I got special training, and that is for churches that are in between long-term calls and need to look at some issues that happened or how they really want to define themselves now that Pastor A is gone and trying to figure out who they are so that they can get the right pastor B next. Mm-hmm. Some places have uh, very healthy systems. They're just trying to get over some bumps. Some other places that kind of got issues with how that ending happened, and they kind of need to work through that. So, there's all different reasons to have an intentional interim minister, and I got some training to do that. So, I've been there since November at St. George's Church in Milford, Michigan, and it's a small town got some history it's a it's a suburb of detroit and people uh, started moved there were working for gm primarily there were a lot of people working for general motors they have a test track in milford that has high fences with barbed wire at the top so you can't sneak in and see what kind of cars gm is is testing on their on their racetrack out there i haven't made it over the fence but I do know well, that uh, they're still doing <laughs> cool stuff behind there, I think. So, what was it like to be a minister during the pandemic? People probably needed uh, a lot of help, I'm guessing. It sucked to be a pastor during the pandemic. I got to say, so much of, of what we go into this for and are trained to do is person to person in singles or in groups. And we were not trained to be video producers. We, we were not trained to to figure out how to install a uh, a camera in the sanctuary. <laughs> Those are all. Th- I spent a lot of time 
trying to get Ethernet cable into the sanctuary so that I could video our worship service and get it out to the people in a in a reasonable manner. This is all stuff that was mm-hmm. not what we learned. And neither were we were allowed to visit people in the hospital or in their homes, you know, so a lot of phone calls, emails, some kind of, uh, you know, sometimes FaceTime. I and everybody else in the church learned Zoom. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you are enjoying the conversation. As you listen, please think about acknowledging the generosity of our guests for sharing their lives. Leave a comment, tell a friend, post about what you've heard on social media, maybe sign up to be a guest yourself. The discussions we have on this podcast are made all the richer with your participation. Now, back to the conversation. So what's it like to try to minister to someone that remotely? Because you're with people at their most intimate moments of their life, happy times, sad times, tragic times, joyous times. How do you share those kinds of things remotely? Well, we could meet outside for the early part of the pandemic. That was one one way you, you could deal with people face-to-face was if you could be outside. You know, people didn't understand exactly how do these viruses fly around? You know, is it surfaces? Is it only respiratory? There are so many questions. We didn't want people touching anything other anybody else had touched. So, we could talk outside. I could stand on somebody's porch or we could put chairs on the porch 10 feet away from each other and talk. Funerals got delayed mm-hmm. until it was safe for a few people to gather. And and as the different variants came and went, you know, we got little windows of opportunity. Did, Quick did a couple of funerals in the summer of 2021 before uh, Delta and then Omicron arrived just a weird time. We were blessed where I was for the first half of the pandemic in Brighton, Michigan, not too far away from where I am now. The town had an amphitheater outdoors right next door to the church. So during the summer when it wasn't too hot and it wasn't too wet, we could have service outdoors right there and that was and actually see each other. <laughs> Didn't have to have Zoom. Everyone was so happy to actually see each other face to face for a change. I bet. So, you know, you, you I referred to this a minute ago, but you, you help people through major transitions in life. I and mean, that's part of a minister's job is the day to day, the every Sunday and everything in between, but also the baptisms and the confirmations and the happy things, the weddings, and then mm-hmm. also the sad things, the funerals and uh, sometimes counseling people in times of grief or difficulty. Where do you get the strength to share those things. It must be emotionally a bit of a roller coaster. How, how do you handle that as a priest? We get it from God. I mean, that's that's what the faith is, that the Holy Spirit has always promised to be in the midst of those difficult times as well as the joyous times. And I actually find it a huge privilege to sit with someone who's dying and just be able to assure them of God's love and that the big picture is reconciliation and reunion, and that we don't have to be afraid to cross from this life to the next. Just to hold that person's hand, and even if I'm wearing a mask, you can hold their hand eventually. That We decided that was all right. The family was near, and just, just them listening to me comfort this person was also very moving from them. You know, we're all crying, 
just to just to have the beauty of of seeing somebody off and knowing through faith we'll meet again somehow and no idea exactly how but I guess that's why you call it faith yes so um, I did one wedding outdoors at a at a hotel uh, courtyard that was the only wedding I did during the pandemics so far I guess I can't really say it's all done and a couple funerals during that that little window and knock on wood none of the funerals I did were directly covid I was extremely blessed. We had congregations who, especially in Detroit, were really literally decimated by the virus mm. in a matter of months, had lost 10% of their population, sometimes more. Wow. And did you work with any of those parishes? Or is, that the, is there a support group among the priesthood? There are support groups, and we, we would get together over Zoom. We still do. Now we can get together in person, but we've actually, we probably will not go back to meetings only in person anymore. <laughs> Zoom has really been, you know, we don't have to drive that half an hour each way. This is great. So we do still meet. We're geographically pretty close, the group that I meet with every week, but you know, just how's your week been? We we eventually get around to talking about the scriptures for the coming Sunday's sermons, but mostly it's, how are you doing? What Anything you need help with? And we'll share that and we'll share ideas or we'll say, you know, this really didn't work. And people, rather than trying to fix it, will just say, oh, that, that's terrible. And I've been through something and I know what it feels like and you can make it, you know, just all those good support group kind of things. Where do you come up with your ideas for a sermon? Obviously, you've got a particular reading that everyone does on the Sunday, so you all have the same readings, but you have all the different churches in the areas. How do you come up with your message for your sermons? It's really got to be a blend of what I have been through, what I think my congregation is going through. I would hate to be, you know, a kind of visiting preacher who knows nothing about where they're showing up, because then you don't have the context. So, the Episcopal Church is one of the churches that uses a lectionary, which is a schedule of readings. And like many churches, we use the Revised Common Lectionary. Not all churches use it, I've been discovering. Even some that I thought were supposed to, they they still have the leeway to just pick whatever they're going to say. I like the challenge of being set, being told, okay, here's your parameters. You get these lessons, this date, this situation in the world, what are you going to say? And sometimes it's like, Lord, I cannot think of a blessed thing to say. Then that's when you come up with... Uh, ideas from movies. But usually usually there's something going on in the world, something going on in my, my life that might be common to other people, something going on in the community that you grab a, an idea out of and try to make it into good news. Do you have like a library of all the, the sermons you've given? Well, I've got a library of the old ones when I used to write it out. I don't write them out anymore. Do you have like bullet About, points or anything, or do you just go up and sometimes, wait? sometimes I I will I will write out quotes so I don't misquote anybody, but mostly I I might have an outline. Often I just uh, have it in my head. Sometimes, uh, like if a baby starts screaming or something happens and it kind of goes out of my head, which is never good. But mostly I I'm just going with the plan I made and how I see the looks on people's faces, and if they're zoning out, I'm going to add a little more excitement to my tone of voice or my stories. <laughs> but that lets me walk up and down, look at people in the face, see if they're engaging with what I have to say, see if anybody's nodding their heads. 
see if anybody's saying, oh, yes, yes, uh, that's always good. Sometimes I'll throw a question out there, and it's always good if somebody responds. The early service is less frequent than the late service, (laughs) if people actually answer me back. But it's really that combination of the world, the scripture, the community, and the self is where I get my sermon ideas. And sometimes it's what movie I just want to see or or saw on TV. (laughs) So, you've seen literally decades of people's lives, learned a lot as their their minister. If you would take what you've learned and go back in time to 1983, 1984, when we were just starting, like what, what would you say to us? What would your message be? I think I would say just learn as many different wonderful things as you can and don't count on your first job being your last job. I think our kids now know that. But I think back then, an awful lot of us, well, I'll say a lot of me, I figured if I majored in finance, I'd always be in finance or something like that. And I think I'm just, uh, I was happily surprised out of that assumption. I would just encourage, I would have encouraged our class, just, yeah, take those, make sure everybody takes Mambo and make sure everybody takes art history and try an intramural sport just for the heck of it. And, you know, get as many wonderful experiences that a place like Yale offers, because you're never going to have that great a place to just experiment with your interests and your abilities anywhere else in in your life, probably. I'm sure there's some people who have. (laughs) Are there any messages you give to uh, Curtin students, particularly, you know, those going off to college, you know, uh, about sort of the, all the tumult we have in the world? You know, I've got a daughter who's who's finishing her junior year in college. She's out west at Occidental, and she's majoring in something called critical theory social justice. I know of no career path that has that <laughs> as a prerequisite besides, uh, you know, she's going to be an unemployed liberal arts person. But I'm fine with that. She is, though she's distressed, uh, and many young people are distressed by the situation in the world. We watched a movie together, the one about the real, the kind of the farce about the comet that was going to hit the earth. You know, nobody would believe Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. Don't look up. Yeah. And she was literally too distressed because it was a parable for people in the climate crisis. And, you know, she was taking it very, Seriously. So, I think the kids starting college today have have just this literal possibility of the world ending as we've all taken it for granted. At least they, many of them see it that way. So, you know, I guess I would say, you know, read up on the ways you can make a difference, even if it's just a little difference. If you're distressed by what you see in the world, learn something that will help you make that thing better in a little way. It could grow into a big way. But, you know, if the climate situation is making you full of dread about the future, then learn something about the climate that you can help to fix. I know nothing about ecology, but I might have learned something had I had the the sensitivities of kids uh, in school these days. Learn something that will become your way to make the world better. So we've gotten to the part of the podcast that usually call the lightning round, which is some quick (laughs) questions and answers, although I find that usually it's not so quick, but that's okay. So quick question. In times of your life that are difficult, are there particular scriptures you turn to 
that give you solace? And if so, what are they? I would say Jesus's overall message that I I am with you. I'm with you to the end of the ages. I mean, it's there at the end of Matthew, but there's lots of other places that he says that to his friends. Don't freak out. I am with you. Um, yeah, life is not always going to be easy, but I'm walking with you all the way. And if you're trying to do love, then you're doing the right thing. Do you have a favorite hymn? Wow. Um, kind of depends on where I am in the week or in the year or what I'm thinking about. Uh, as we're talking, we're thinking about Easter. So, I've got some great Easter hymns that <laughs> that I'm thinking about that play through my head. The strife is o'er, the battle won. You know, what, I would love to feel that way some days. <laughs> yeah, just it tends to be uplifting things. Um, and there's a lot of them. When you go back, uh, hopefully we'll see you in at reunion in June. When we go back, will you be going back to the Episcopal Chapel? I won't be there on Sunday because I got to work. <laughs> I didn't think of that. That's sort of like, it's your busiest time. Yeah, I would love to. It's actually the uh, the Sunday of the reunion weekend is, is Pentecost in the Western Church's calendar. So, I have to come back on Saturday. <laughs> so, I'll be there from Thursday to Saturday. But, you know, I was, my daughter, my older daughter went to Yale. And after a couple uh, semesters of just not really sure what she wanted to do, she she connected with the Episcopal Chapel chaplaincy and uh, became a leader on their student governing board. So that's all a mom can hope for, really, that she found her way without my having to shove her there because that wouldn't have worked. She really needed to find it herself. So I would love to meet the new chap. They have a new Episcopal chaplain there. She just started recently. I would love to meet her. Maybe I'll try to track her down. She moved to Connecticut from Hawaii. Would you do that? I don't know. I like Connecticut a lot. So, yeah, I might. <laughs> I like the seasons. Um, so, what can I say? Final question is, and maybe this isn't fair as a lightning round question, but I'll give it out there anyway. Do you have a goal for the future? You've got this parish all tucked away. Are you going on to a next parish or do you have other bigger plans? I'll probably do one or two more of these transitions, transition jobs. I really think that's uh, my calling right now. Uh, it's nice to have a set of goals that you can meet and to see a congregation through those. And honestly, it will keep me from getting too emotionally connected to them because pretty soon I can retire. We actually have a pension in the Episcopal Church that if you hit 30 years of service, you can start getting your pension. Hmm. And I'm going to be getting that, uh, the, getting to 30 pretty soon. So, yeah, my husband and I are both looking at retiring in the next three to five years. So, that's really what I'm looking forward to, <laughs> doing something different. Well, we, we don't know where we want to live, probably not right here, but yeah, we want to be in a place that has maybe a college town or not too far from one where we can get intellectual stimulation still. We're really looking forward to not having to come up with sermons every single week, and we might be able to sleep in on Sundays. So, being in a good place where we can get out our kayaks and our tennis rackets and just enjoy life without too many people to worry about besides ourselves for a little while. But we'll probably keep a finger in it. Places always need Sunday. We call it Sunday Supply. Just somebody who can show up 
produce a, a, a worship service and a sermon, get a little check, and make a lot of people happy and grateful that you're there. It's always a good feeling to do that. I bet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to seeing you. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale college has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.